0: My favorite st- stories in the gospel uh, is in Mark chapter three, where Jesus is—he's uh, teaching, and his family's gotten worried about him. I mean, they've heard these rumors that he's casting out demons. There's been charges that he is demon possessed himself. They found out that he's going without meals. He's so busy in ministry, that he's skipping meals, and so they show up to rescue Jesus. That Jesus is leading the first life group in history. Well, it does say they're sitting in a circle, right? All right? And, and so Jesus is leading this group, and uh, his parents, his mother and his brothers, show up outside and send word in to send him out. And we, we think he's in trouble. And and Jesus hears, they say, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus looks around that circle of people and says, hey, guys, this is my mother and brothers and sisters Whoever does God's will is my family. And Jesus says, this is my family. And, and what Jesus is trying to establish is a, a forever family. And today we're going to look at a text. I think this can be very helpful as we think about what it means for us to be a, a church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a great text. You, you may not recognize this. But when you read the Gospels, they're not written like a biography in chronological order. Often different stories or teachings of Jesus are put together. We might say here in the South, they are clumped together to make a point. And the whole chapter of Matthew 18 is put together to make a point about the kind of family that we're going to be. So I hope we can communicate that clearly today. I hope I can do better today than I did last night at a wedding I was performing. I, I was reading actually from a different translation I normally do from First Corinthians 13 that says love is always hopeful. But I did not say hopeful. I said love is always hateful. <laughs> Which probably prepared them for marriage better than anything else I said, okay? But so hopefully today we'll do a little bit better than that. And we're just going to wade through Matthew 18. Let's start actually in verse 1 here. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is greatest is the, in the kingdom of heaven? Now, now let's, let's get context here. We know they've been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And so when they ask this question, they're all thinking, hey, man... James and John say, you know, we're the two closest to Jesus, he's going to say us. Peter says, I'm the spokesman, he's going to say us. He's going to say me. They're they're expecting Jesus to name one of them. And Jesus just throws a curveball at him when Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children you will never get into the kingdom of God. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. First point, for us to truly have family ties, we've got to be converted in humility. Now, we don't use that term a lot anymore, the word converted. It's a great word. It's the word that Jesus uses here. Unless you turn... And change and repent, you can't be a part of my family. Now, now just to do that implies humility. You see, you can't become a part of God's family without, first of all, admitting you've got some problems. Without admitting that you need some help. I'm afraid sometimes we try to convince someone to become a Christian and we almost try to say, you know, you're a really good person and if you'll come to Jesus, you'll be just a little bit a better person. The truth is, guys, we're all royally messed up and the reason we're a part of this family is because at some point we admitted that we were messed up and we admitted we needed some help and we turned to Jesus that help. And Jesus says the example of this is a, a little child And there's so many great examples about how children, what children teach us about coming to God. You know, children are just completely um, expressive. They're they're not worried about what people think about them. Our our little 10-month grandson, Taze, I mean, no matter where you are, if he doesn't like what's going on, he just starts screaming. You know, he he doesn't know the people at the table beside us, may not be very appreciative of that. He just, he doesn't like what you're doing right now. And children are just open that way. They're honest, aren't they? I remember our daughter, Lindsay, when she was just a little bitty girl, and if she didn't like what someone was doing, this is what she'd say. I'm taking you off my birthday list. Okay? And we love those things about children. But the example Jesus uses about children is their humility. We could talk about their joy. You want to see some joy? Show up at this building tonight at 6 o'clock. And some of you are watching this from our Birmingham campus. You can see this is VBS night here in Montgomery. And, and, and you, you want just, to just be overwhelmed by joy, you come and see this. Because you're going to see some kids having a, a great time. But listen, Jesus' point here about children is none of the above. Jesus' point is that children are humble. And w- what does that mean? They know they're completely dependent on someone else for everything they've got. A child, whether they consciously or unconsciously know this, know that they can't make it. They're not going to have food. They're not going to have shelter. They will not survive unless they have some people that are taking care of them. And and so what Jesus says, if you want to be a part of this family, if we want to have some ties, then what would destroy those ties is pride. You cannot come to God with pride. You cannot come saying, God, I'm a pretty good guy. I know i got a few little problems, and I know I could really help your kingdom out if I could be a part. No, no, no. You are a sinner in need of God's grace. And we can't have a good family if we have pride among ourselves. Because as a family, we're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to need to say, you know what? I was wrong about what I said the other day. I shouldn't have said it that way. Or, I'm sorry for how that came across. Or, you know what? I, what I knew is for me to be who I ought to be, I need your help. I'm struggling. I can't do life by myself. I, I got to hear this week um, at a, a business conference um, actually, Paul Evans spoke and Bruce Pearl spoke, and Paul's probably the best speaker there. But Bruce Pearl, the new basketball coach at Auburn, I was just really impressed with him. I hate to say that because I don't like it. But, um,. <laughs> And, and he was talking about getting to know Pat Summit, the University of Tennessee, who's that famous basketball coach, you know, probably most successful college basketball coach in history. And he said what he learned from Pat Summit was this. She knew she did not know it all. As successful and as mean national championships she won, she was always learning. And my friends, for us to be family, we've got to know we don't None of us know it all. We've got to be learning. So first part, there is humility. Now go down to verse 5 now. And anyone, Jesus says, who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. When you teach those VBS kids tonight, when you feed them those snacks, you love on them, listen to me. You are welcoming Jesus. All right? Now he begins to talk about young Christians. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow. That's pretty strong. Next point we need to be concerned enough to care. We've got to care. And what Jesus can say in this section is, you're going to care enough to do some things. All right. You see, the first point here is you're going to care enough that you you know your actions could affect other people. You're going to care how your actions affect them. Guys, if if we're going to be more than just um, church members that happen to show up and sit under the same roof once or twice a week, if we're going to be family then we got to care. i got to care about what's going on in your life. You've got to care what's going on in my life. And we've got to be willing to go the extra mile to do it. You've heard the old saying, it's as true as it was when someone first said it. People do not care how much you know until they what? Know how much you care. And as a church, let me tell you what we need to do. We just need to out-care everybody in this city. Uh, you know, if, if we're going to mis- make a mistake as a church... You know what I mean? Let's make it on the, the side of caring too much. You know, I, I'm okay with somebody coming here and saying, you know what, I, I'm just sort of getting tired of these people. They will not leave me alone. I, I, I'd much rather be that than them being a walk away from here and say, you know, they'll hardly speak to you when they go to that church. They don't care what I do. No, we care. And first of all, he says, you know what, the greatest sin of all is to cause somebody else to sin. And so, first of all, I care how my actions affect you. Now, God's strongest judgment is reserved for people who would lead young disciples down a road of sin. I used to see this a lot in campus ministry. You know, you become a large campus ministry and... People on campus all want to come, you know, and you got a couple of hundred people there. And if you're not careful, it becomes the place where people meet to go out and party together or go hook up for sex. It's dangerous. But I am convinced it's not just happening in campus ministries. When, when, when he come to church here, he, he says, you want a, 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 a millstone. The, the word here used for millstone is one so heavy, only a mule could move it. If you, if you hook up with somebody here and you lead them in the wrong direction into sin, he's saying, I'm telling you what, it'd be better, that you'd be better off for God just to hook that around your, your neck and drown you. That's how serious this is. And so I challenge us guys. Do we think about how our actions affect other people? Now, let me just go on a real sensitive subject here. In the subject of alcohol. And you say, well, buddy, my goodness, Jesus turned water into wine. I believe that. I don't think he's non-alcoholic. I think that's a lame argument. I don't think it's sinful for you to drink some wine. I, I don't. I I can't make a biblical case for that. But but, but here's what bothers me, is as we found this freedom here, and we understand the Bible's teaching about this, I see people in our church abuse that freedom. Because we don't care who we drink around. And let me tell you, if you're having a group over to your house for some social event, or if you're throwing some kind of reception, and and we got some of our overcomers here in this church come to your house— and you're serving alcohol, I'm telling you, you're doing a dangerous thing. And I see people throwing these deals where, man, the alcohol is just flooding, and there's college students everywhere. Let me give you a statistic today. On American college campus today, 50% of college students binge drink. And if you want a shocking statistic, if they're part of fraternity or sorority, the statistic goes up to 80%. They binge drink. They drink until they're sick so they can drink some more. And, and so, guys, we've got to be careful. Yet yeah, does the Bible condemn any kind of alcohol? In your life? No. But the Bible does warn us it's something we need to be careful about. And if, if I'm going to use my freedom in a way that's going to affect somebody else, I get my life group together and we decide, oh, man, it's okay. We're free. We'll all pull out the beers Are you thinking about who's going to be there? Are you thinking about there may be someone there who actually can't handle that? Maybe you can't handle it, but they can't. See, guys, we've got to think through how our actions affect other people. Guys, this is is a deeper level than just legalistically, can I drink or not? This is, I care so much about you. I don't want to do anything in your life that might cause you to go down a wrong path. And if I've got to give up some of my freedom here for you to be okay, I'm going to do that. Now, let's keep reading. He says some some more things very clearly here about how we treat each other. Verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he'll rejoice over it more than over the 99 that don't wander away. In the same way is not my heavenly Father's will, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now listen to me, guys. Jesus, if you read the New Testament, he's not good at math. Makes very little sense here. you got 99 safe and you lose one. I think I'd be pretty happy with 99 percentile, wouldn't you? But Jesus is not. He said, we're going to go after the one... And, and, and actually, we're going to rejoice more about the one than the 99 who stuck around. And so here's, here's our next point. Our next point is I care enough to go after you. I care enough to go after you. You see, because when you're family, the percentages don't help. If you've got a bunch of children, let's say somehow God's blessed you with six children, and you lose one of those children in a terrible accident, You don't say, well, you know what, I lost that one, but I still got five. Man, I'm doing pretty good. No, it would devastate you. And when we become family, we can't go, well, you know, we've only lost a couple out here. That's all right, you know, look at all the people we still got. No, we care enough to go after you. We care enough to seek you. Because in a church, even as large as this, every individual counts. So, can I ask you this morning, who are you going after? Or are we just so pleased that we're all here? But then he gets even deeper, even more challenging. Let's go to verse 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church, then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Wow. We're pretty uncomfortable with that one. He adds another, another layer of care. I care enough to correct you. What's he saying? If you see me in sin, there's two different translations there. Uh, two different ideas in the original manuscript. Some it's like if he sins against you, some is just if he sins. We, we, we see one of us that's got caught not in just something we don't like or something gets on our nerves, but we've actually got someone that's caught in a sin. Jesus, Jesus outlines a really very specific process about what we do. Number one, go talk to as many people as you know about that person. Great point, Jesus. Did he say that? No, no, he didn't say that. That's what we do, all right? You know, if somebody we know is caught in sin, we go, oh, I need, buddy, come over here, you know, I saw this the other day, would you pray with me? That makes it more spiritual. Or I need to go, no, 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 that's not what he said. He he said, if you know a brother in a sin, number one, you go to them how? Privately. You're not trying to embarrass somebody, you're not trying to talk about I'm not trying to gossip about I'm not using this to make yourself look good. You go to them and you talk to them about the sin, okay? They say, you know, buddy, I don't want to hear what you're talking about. Forget you. He gives us number two. You take two or three people with you. There's some strength in this. Take one or two people with you. Why? What he's saying is, I-, I think it's a safeguard. Maybe you have misread the, the whole situation yourself and you need someone to, to help you through this. Or you need someone to hear what's being said. You need another voice in the room going, man, we love you. We don't want to see you go down this path. We're here to help. We're not here to judge you. We're here to help you. And then he says, if that won't work, then you take it to the church. Now, that's a hard concept for us. Probably much easier in this day when most of the churches were just small house churches. But what say, saying, you bring the whole church together to help this person. What cannot happen is someone live a rebelliously sinful lifestyle, and yet they enjoy the fellowship of the church. I've seen too many of what we call our grace-filled churches that never confront sin. And that's not a good view of grace. Now, many of us grew up in churches years ago where you might have the elders get up and read a list of people that were being disfellowshipped. Anybody remember that? And and who were those people? It was all the people who hadn't been to church in six months, right? The weird thing about that is we were disfellowshipping people who had already disfellowshipped us. So that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this person who wants to be ingrained in the family of the church who yet doesn't want to live it out. I'm not talking about someone who slips. He's not talking about someone who's just having some problems in their life. We've all got that. That's part of the humility. But someone who rebelliously says, I know what the Bible says about this, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. He says. we got to go after those people. And we got to talk to those people. And we've got to bring the weight of the church. Now, he said, that sounds so awful when he says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. No, it's not awful. How do we treat pagans and tax collectors? We love them. How did Jesus treat pagan tax collectors? That's not saying you treat them bad. It's saying you treat them like they need to be converted all over again. You love them, reach out to them, try to help them change just like you would some other sinner out there in the world. It's not being ugly, it's not the opposite of love, it's true love. Many of us have forgotten in our families, and many of us have forgotten in the church family, that sometimes love is tough. The, the wise man said back in Proverbs, better an open rebuke than love that's concealed. What's he saying? If someone really loves you and they see you going down a path that's destructive to your life and your soul, the person who loves you is the person who confronts you, not the person who mealy mouse over here on the side and says, oh, I just can't say anything. Don't want to offend them. That's not real love. Okay? Well, let's keep going. What happens next? Look at verses 19 and 20. I also tell you this if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For two or three gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. This group is connected in fellowship. All right? They're connected in fellowship. That there's a power, he says, when two or three of God's people get together. One of the biggest things that hurts us as a church in America is American individualism, right? We we hold up the example of the individual who can make it on their own. The self-made man, the self-made woman. That's not a real biblical idea. Ancient communities and even communities in other cultures around our world today have a much closer view of community and a family. They don't revere the person that stands on their own. They revere the people who stand together. And that's part of what makes us a family that's tied together, is that we know we need each other. And in, in, in context here, nothing brings us any closer together than when we pray together. You love it when you see that kind of community. Saw that last night at that uh, hateful wedding I did, all right? Uh, the wedding was between uh, Jay Dickens, who grew up here at Landmark, left for a few years, over oh, the last year came back, and uh, Mary Ellen Marvel. She's only been here about six months since they were dating and become a part of our church family. Now, they're new. They don't know a lot of people. But what's so cool in performing that wedding ceremony is to look out there and see their life group was there in force. Nobody else. That's okay because these are the people, a bunch of young married and young singles, who pulled them in to the fellowship of this church and on their most special day— If they had not been in that life group, I'm telling you, Stephanie and I had been the only representatives of Landmark. But because of that, there was a whole host of people that were there to celebrate and rejoice with them in what was going on. It's that kind of connection. Because we're not going to stand, guys, as individuals. We're going to stand strong together. And then one more point. Let's go down to verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to him and asked... Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Okay, seven times? Now, Peter thinks he's being very magnanimous here. I mean, the the rabbis would teach in this day that if someone sinned against you, you had to forgive them up to three times. I mean, that was being gracious. And, And they would actually write, if someone had to be forgiven more than three times, they really weren't repenting. And so Peter thinks, man, I'm going to really get some brownie points with Jesus today. Because I'm going to take what the rabbi said, and I'm going to double it, and I'm going to add one, and I'm going to impress Jesus greatly. So Jesus, I think I'd, I'd be willing to go so far to forgive somebody seven times. And then Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. This is a family covered by forgiveness. How far? 70 times 70. What's that? 490. So you've been adding up in your marriage, 388, 389, 400, 480, four, we're almost there. Is that what Jesus is saying? Oh, Jesus is saying, my goodness, it is, our forgiveness is unending there is no limitation of the forgiveness that we would give to each other. And then he tells this crazy story about this guy who owes a king about $12 million, $12 million in our term and falls down before the king, the king's about to throw him in jail and begs him to give him some time, and the king forgives his debt. And then this same fellow who's just been given up you know, been forgiven, $12 million, goes out and he has someone who owes him $46. It's 500,000 times more between what he had owed and what this person owes. And his friend says, oh man, please, please give me some time, please. He says the exact words he had said to the master and he throttles him and throws him in jail. And then the king finds out and says, I'm telling you this, If you won't forgive other people, you're cutting off my forgiveness. You see, guys, we are to be a forgiving people. There's no limitations to our forgiveness. And and guys, here's why there's no limitations. Because there's been no limitations to God's forgiveness of me. And I become a conduit of the love of God and the forgiveness of God. Listen to me. No family, physical, church, you name it. Is going to stay together without an awful lot of forgiveness. That's what it's going to take. You get hurt, you're going to have to forgive. You have to forgive and forgive and forgive. We've had a great example in the press of this this week. Maybe you follow this, maybe you're not into sports. But this whole story about LeBron James is a really pretty great example. You know, when he left Cleveland four years ago, he left some terribly hurt feelings. That was his hometown. They loved him there. He has this big TV show when he announces his decision, goes to South Beach and throws it in their face. The owner of the, my, of the Cleveland Cavaliers had written on the website that um, LeBron James is a selfish, narcissistic man who's a terrible role model to our children. But you know what? LeBron James decided he wanted to come home, didn't he? And that owner and him had to get together. And he took that letter off that website. And he apologized for the way he had treated him. And LeBron James said, you know what? I was an immature young man back then. And the way I handled it and the way I rejected the people who loved me the most was not right. And we need to get back together. And when we get back together, we'll just forgive because I want to go home. It's a great example. And guys, we've got to believe no matter how far... Our, our, and how tense our relationship have become, how strained they've become. Forgiveness can overpower that. Well, let's close out today. Let me, let me make a point here, all right? I want to talk about restoring family ties. And I'm about to give an overgeneralization. So understand, I know that I'm overstating what I'm about to say. But, but I want to say this to conclude this message. In my generation, here's what I thought when I was a young preacher. Here's what I saw. I saw a group of people that were committed to the church, but not to Jesus. I I can remember as a, a kid, the first time I actually heard a preacher start talking about Jesus, I just not heard it. And when I went into ministry, I I was very convicted that what we needed is a group of people because all we talked about was the church, the church, and sometimes we were really offensive. We'd say, the church, the church, the church. And we were offensive and arrogant. It's all we talked about. And so I felt like at that point in my life, what I had to do, what I needed for myself, and what the church needed is we needed to fall in love with Jesus because we we love the church, and you were, some of you grew up in those days, man. You wouldn't miss church for anything. I mean, you, you know, if you missed a Wednesday night or Sunday night, you were going straight to hell, and so you didn't miss. If I remember those days, raise your hand. Do no, I look like I'm crazy? But today, I think I may need to preach differently. Today's generation, I'm afraid, is committed to Jesus but not the church. We've got a different time. And, and we've learned to love Jesus. But, but, you know, the church, I can do it virtually on my computer, man, buddy. I can go home today and I can listen to ten preachers that are better than you. I don't have to come to church. And there are lots of people, even today, they're going to virtual churches. The, all you do it is on your computer by yourself. By yourself. Oh, we're so busy, guys, that here, here's what's happened is, where in the past, we would not miss church for anything. Now the truth is, many of us will miss church for anything. It's the first thing to be cut in our schedule. If there's a conflict in today's generation, the church activity will be cut before anything. Anything. If I hear something that sounds funner, something more enjoyable, I will punt the church activity quicker than anything. You understand what I'm saying here, guys? You know I'm saying the truth. I would love to hear someone say, oh, okay, you want me to go to that ball game with you? You want me to go do this? Uh, uh, no, I, I can't. I, I really can't go, man. I, I need to be at church tonight. That would be incredible. So, guys, I'm telling you, we've got to become this this family that's tied together, that's humble. We don't come in here proud, that we care enough to go the second mile to confront, to bring somebody back, that has a deep fellowship. That's covered by forgiveness. Because here's what I believe today, guys. It is too easy for most of us to leave our church. Too easy. The newest thing comes down the pike. We used to be that one, all right? The newest, flashiest thing comes, man. I'm just going to go from here to here to here. Because, and guys, the reason we can do that is because we're not connected this way. You know what I'm saying? Here's what I believe, guys. If we were humble and connected and we were, we were caring deeply for each other, you know, even at times having to confront each other, if we enjoyed that kind of fellowship, I'm going to tell you, it would be so hard for me to leave this church. Why? Because it's, it's my family. You don't just leave family. You don't leave the people who've laid their life on the line for you just because something's flashier. It's just too easy to leave. Here's my challenge for us. Here's my dream, guys. Let's make it so difficult to leave this church. I mean, let's obey Matthew 18. And let's live this way where we have this kind of depth of relationship. Where if we do have a problem with each other, man, we get it straight. Where we do need to forgive, we immediately forgive. Where we do care, when I fall down, you pick me up. When you fall down, I'm there to pick you up. When we have that kind of fellowship, you know, I'm going to tell you, when you're enmeshed in that, that can take time. That can take dedication. It can take this being more than just a place that you happen to be a member of. It can take us becoming family. So today I ask you, Maybe you're one of our guests today, and and you need a family. And Jesus says, this might even be more of a family to you than your family family. Maybe you've been rejected in your family. Maybe it's a difficult place, and you need a family. Let me tell you, we will do everything we can to be that family for you. And maybe you are quote-unquote in this family, but has not become family because you've not been committed to it being family. Today could be the day where you need to say, you know what, I do love Jesus, but I can't love the head and not the body. I can't be in love with the groom and diss his bride. The Bible knows nothing of someone who loves Jesus and who doesn't love the church who's committed to Jesus in their quote-unquote American personal relationship with Jesus, but is not connected to a fellowship. It's unknown in Scripture. And it's not right. And maybe today's the day where you need to go, you know what, guys, I don't know if it's y'all's fault or my fault. Who cares? We'll just forgive each other. But I need to be reconnected. And I want to be reconnected today. Let's sing this great old hymn together, Blessed Be the tie." And if you need to come, why don't you come right now?